Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, uh, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourine, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another, uh, to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from, the, uh, from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all, in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, 
for he went out and came in before them. Thank you, Isaac, for us. We remember again together that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help as we consider this passage together this morning. Father, we come once again in prayer and we just give you thanks for, for your word, Lord. And just uh, incredible to think that we can have these accounts that have happened, Lord, thousands of years ago. And yet we see, Lord, you consistently, Lord, sustaining your faithful servants and, Lord, uh, guiding and leading them, protecting your people. And, Lord, most of all, pointing the way forward to the son of David who would give himself as a ransom for many and, Lord, would rise victorious over the grave. And so we pray that, Lord, we may just uh, understand and apply some of these truths and principles to ourselves today. We pray, most of all, you help us to, to see and know Christ more clearly, even as we prepare to come to the table, Lord, that uh, our hearts would be just filled with, with thanksgiving at uh, what he has done for us and that we can be called even the friends of God, Lord, that that truly would just uh, be a wonderful news to our souls and uh, strength, Lord, to our bones. We, we pray that you guide uh, the time now that as I speak, it would be with clarity and Lord, with the conviction of your spirit and that, Lord, for those hearing, that there would just be uh, an eager uh, anticipation of, of your word ministering and instructing and guiding. Father, we, we look to you now to work through this means you've given, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Thank you. So the uh, title this morning is Reactions to God's Servant, and we know that within God's created world, there are many different times we see varying reactions to the same circumstance, and we may wonder uh, about that at times. We know you can put a, a raw egg into boiling water, and it gets harder, becomes rigid. You can put a potato into boiling water and it becomes soft and you can smash it up and eat it. We see people respond differently even to varying types of food. I know for myself, uh, I do not like Brussels sprouts. And if you try to give me one, I will maybe try to choke it down, but not going to enjoy it. Whereas other people might eat the same thing and enjoy it and, and actually want more. And as, as we see in this passage here, there is actually a very stark contrast in the way that people react to the servant of God. So the way that people react to the man who has been equipped by God, filled with his spirit, and even demonstrating the presence of God with him. And it is the difference of night and day as we consider uh, these reactions this morning. And I know it's been a while since we've been in Samuel. Uh, just to recall a little bit of where we've come from in this study Way back in um, chapter 15, the kingdom was taken from Saul because of his ongoing disobedience against God. A numerous times, Saul had demonstrated that he did not fear the God. He did not fear God more than man. And so he would rather 
do his own thing or, or listen to the counsel of men or seek to please his fellow man rather than obey the voice of God. And because of this, Samuel came to Saul and said, Saul, the kingdom is being torn away from you and I'm giving it to, to one of your neighbors. I'm giving it to one who is better than you, one who is a man after God's own heart. And in that moment, Saul reached out and grabbed the cloak of Samuel and tore a piece off in trying to get Samuel to stay and to bless him. And Samuel said that is really an illustration of how the kingdom is torn from Saul. And then later we saw Samuel go to the house of Jesse and anoint David's head with oil, indicating that this is the man of God's choosing. Now, we don't know exactly how David's family perceived all of this, Uh, It seemed that no one else really knew about this anointing. Certainly King Saul wasn't aware of it, nor any of the king's household, that this man had actually already been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. But we saw that God continued to affirm David as his faithful servant and future king. And uh, David Bosma preached uh, last time we were in Samuel um, on the the battle between David and Goliath, this well-known scene where the Philistine giant is taunting the armies of Israel, mocking them, really, which is, which is a mockery of God, not just of the armies of Israel. And David, hearing this mockery and the spirit of God within him stirring him, he, he rises to the challenge to face this giant man to man. And David defeats Goliath in the strength of the Lord with just a sling and a stone. And he cuts off the giant's head and Israel is delivered from their enemy. And so we really pick up in chapter 18 after all of that has happened and uh, all the people are are no doubt rejoicing and, and grateful as how God has delivered his people through this young man, David. And so we see a a number of reactions here to the man of God, to the servant of God. And as we think about this, we ourselves are told that we too are given the spirit of God. We also stand, in a sense, as ambassadors in this world. And we should also expect varying responses to this ministry of the spirit within us, to the testimony of God's grace, even as David experienced it. And we will see as well that this really does point us forward to Christ who experienced such contrast in his own life and ministry, even resulting finally in his death. So we see God blesses his servant with his presence. And this is one of the key distinctions between David and Saul. And this has always been a distinction of God's people. This is a distinction of you. What really distinguishes us from the world. It's not so much our ethnicity. It's not so much our skill set. It's not so much our social status. Really, it comes down to the presence of God with us through the Lord Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, because we have been washed with his blood. We have been born again. We have been brought into the family of God. And so we too can expect varying responses as we, as we live out this calling in the world. So really, there are twofold as we look at this passage. First of all, we see the response to David with loyalty and love. And this is especially clear in the life of Jonathan, which is very ironic. It is that this is Saul's son. 
But we also see the response in regards to the congregation, to the people. And I want to look together for a few moments at this twofold positive response. First of all, in, a, in an individual personal level and then corporately as well as we consider the response to David together. If we look at verse 1, we see initially the response of, of love and loyalty to the servant of God. And we're told that as soon as um, he had finished speaking, so just prior we saw Saul said to him, uh, who, who are you? Uh, whose son are you? And David answers, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so identifying himself and we're told as soon as David identifies himself before Saul and the household of the king, Jonathan's soul, we're told, was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on his on him, he gave it to David. He took his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. And, 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 and Jonathan showers David with love and fellowship and even establishing this covenant of friendship. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Jonathan. Uh, and this is one of the benefits of really going through a, a study like this is we start to see the whole picture. And if you just flip back for a quick moment to chapter 14... We saw Jonathan to be a man of faith, a man who feared the Lord and, unlike his father, was a man of courageous faith. You remember how Jonathan with his armor bearer, they were, they were uh, somewhat surrounded by the Philistines. There had been some backlash from the aggression towards them and Saul was sort of hiding out in, outside of a cave there, sheltered from the enemy. And Jonathan, with his armor bearer, says, let us go to the camp of the Philistines, for perhaps the Lord will give us victory over them. And he sets up this whole scene. We have saw that in the past. If you look in uh, uh, verse 8 of 14, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will... Show ourselves to them, and if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, and for the Lord has given them into our hand. And we saw in that moment, Jonathan win a tremendous victory for the people of Israel. He was a man who feared the Lord. And so as Jonathan sees David, also a man of faith, filled with the Spirit of God, and he stands courageously against this giant... Jonathan is drawn to David, and we're told that their heart, their, their souls are, are knit together. And the, the word here is a very strong word. It's almost the imagery of, of being bound together with ropes. This unique friendship, and I would say kinship in the Holy Spirit that these two men shared. If this was to be described by you know, Anne of Green Gables, which for some reason came to my mind, which it sometimes does. Uh, remember the statement she used as, of kindred spirits that her and her neighbor, was it Diana, um, were kindred spirits. And I think maybe that almost kind of gets at something of the imagery here. These two men united in this unique friendship, bound together by the Spirit of God. And uh, I hate to even mention it, but of course many today want to, to take this to mean something inappropriate between these two men which I think is obnoxious. And sadly, we live in a culture that wants to pervert everything 
But there's no indication here at all that there was anything inappropriate or sinful. This was a friendship, uh, I would say, in the Lord, but a unique friendship of closeness and one that would be a great source of strength to David throughout the trials ahead. It is the sort of friendship that I think John describes in 1 John 1.3. And we find him describing the uh, Christian fellowship that we enjoy in Christ. And uh, I have another paper here. John describes, he says in 1 John 1.3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I think this is exactly the sort of fellowship and friendship that David and Jonathan enjoyed. It is a fellowship that is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have fellowship one to another. And God grants us this sort of fellowship at times in a very personal way, in, in even one-on-one relationships. And this is not something that we're necessarily guaranteed throughout life, but certainly it is a tremendous source of strength and blessing. And you may wonder, what is Jonathan doing here? Why does he transfer his robe, he transfers his armor, he transfers his sow, his sword and his bow and his belt all to David? And it is as though the Spirit of God within Jonathan is already aware of the fact that this man will be the future king of Israel. Remember, Jonathan is is an heir to the throne. He is a prince of Israel. And so the fact that he is transferring his prized possessions over to David is almost as though an act of faith. Him saying that I, I see in you that, the, the, that God has set his hand upon you. God has appointed you. To lead and, and Jonathan as an act of, of loyalty and love to David. Exchange, it gives him uh, these possessions. And we will see this humility in Jonathan as well, even as he becomes more and more aware that this is, in fact, to be the future king of Israel. So we will see at times in response to the servant of God of loyalty and love, and this will manifest itself in At times for the Christian, close friendships, bonds of unity and love, which are a tremendous source of encouragement and strength. I had to think as well of of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian was going through the valley of the the shadow of of death and he had just encountered Apollyon and battled greatly with the the demon Apollyon and, and by God's strength overcame And as Christian was coming to the end of himself in the valley of death, we're told uh, in in Bunyan's work there, it said, after Christian had traveled in this sad condition for a considerable time, he thought he heard a voice of a man as if he were going before him saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And then he was glad. And these are the, the reasons. First, because he gathered Bias that others who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. Second, Christian perceived that God was with them, even in that dark and dismal condition. And why wouldn't he be with me, he thought, even though I can't feel it because of the hindrances associated with this place. And third, if he could catch up with them, he hoped to eventually have fellowship with them. 
And of course, if you are familiar with the story in Pilgrim's Progress, soon Christian would catch up with faithful and they would enjoy companionship and friendship that would strengthen them for the journey ahead. And it's a wonderful picture of, I think, the sort of friendship and blessing that David and Jonathan also enjoyed strengthening one another in the Lord and God blessing David with such a friendship for the trials that he was about to face. And so even for us, there is a sense in which we certainly ought to enjoy such relationships in the Lord to give thanks to God. I think we should desire to, to encourage one another in the Lord as friends that we, we mustn't forget, even as Christian was tempted to forget that we are not alone in the struggles we face. And God has called us to serve and minister to one another, to love one another. As we read together in our time of confession, this is the command Jesus gave to love one another. And sometimes that will be in close friendships. Perhaps you have been given a spouse. And this is actually a wonderful way to, to enjoy a friendship and companionship. And really the aim of the marriage should be, first and foremost, to encourage one another in the Lord to be a means of sanctifying one another. And we can understand that there are, even for those who, who maybe desire to be married and are not yet married, that the Lord also gives us siblings I encourage you, if you have brothers or sisters, even if you're younger at times, it may feel like these are a nuisance. These are in my way. They are crowding in on my space. These are actually given to you as well for a means of companionship, for a means of encouragement. And I've told my boys a number of times that actually one of the best ways to prepare yourself for marriage is to learn to love your brothers and sisters well, to learn to honor and respect your, mo- your mother and father because those patterns and those, those uh, habits of, of relationship and of learning to serve one another in love very much carry over even into a marriage relationship. And God has given us these things to, to encourage our hearts and to build us up. And then we have also the family of God. You, you sometimes run into a brother or a sister and, and your hearts are knit together. There is a sense of fellowship, a sense of communion there. And God gives us that we might encourage one another in the faith and to press on. Even as Paul spoke of Onesiris uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.16, Paul experienced this in his own ministry, times when he was encouraged by a friend or a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. He said in 2 Timothy 1.16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiris, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And what a blessing that that man unashamed of Paul's chains, still would go and minister to Paul, encourage him in the Lord, pray with him in the Lord. And may we do so for one another. But we see also in this response to the servant of God, there is also a corporate response to David. And this is also, I think, in many ways, a consistency throughout the scripture Look at how the people responded to David as they began to see that this man is filled with the Spirit of God. He is God's man. God, has, his hand is upon him. We're told that uh, it was good in, in verse uh, 5 there. As God gives David success, it was good in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. And even as we, we move down further in the passage in verse 12 and following, 
though Saul rejects David and casts him out, we're told he went, he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe for him, of, in fearful awe of him, sorry. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. So there was an individual response in Jonathan, but there was a corporate response as well as the people of Israel realized this man is a, is a man of God. And, and they, they began to love David and, and even began to look to him for leadership. You see, as the people of God who are indwelled by the Spirit of God see a fellow servant, there is also this corporate fellowship and rejoicing and coming together. And this has, as I said, always been a part of, of God's people. Even Elijah thought he was alone in the desert, though he, he had stood firmly on Mount Carmel against the, the prophets of Baal and, and then fled away from the threats of Jezebel. And he convinced himself that he alone was, was faithful to God. He alone was, was seeking the Lord. And, and God graciously rebuked Elijah and said, No, Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is also a corporate element of fellowship and blessing for the Christian. And we need to remind ourselves of this as well. There's a temptation when we are, are hurt or, or disappointed with the, the, the community of God's people to withdraw, to sort of become a lone wolf. And especially nowadays where it's easy to start up a, a ministry or a YouTube channel or whatever it is. And, and we kind of begin to become an island unto ourselves. And, and we begin to miss out on the blessing of the fellowship of God's people, part of this affirmation of God's uh, a presence with us is that fellowship among the congregation. And so we need to also give thanks to God for a people with which to worship. As the psalmist would say in Psalm 68, 26, Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. And we remind ourselves that our salvation is not ultimately an individualistic salvation. Yes, we are saved individually. We are saved personally, but we are brought into a body, into a congregation. Our voices will join the chorus of all the saints throughout all the ages, and we will praise Christ together in the congregation. And so in many ways, even as we gather ourselves together, it is meant to be something of a foretaste of glory to come. It is in many ways a rehearsal of that great gathering of the saints when we stand clothed in white before the throne of Christ. And so let us give ourselves to that. Let us rejoice and give thanks to God for this fellowship of the saints. Remember as we studied in Revelation and so many times as you read through Revelation when you see the, the worship of the Lamb, it is... The congregation, it is the body of believers exalting the Lamb together. Or the picture of Christ himself walking among the lampstands. What are the lampstands? It's, it's, we're told it's the churches. He is there presently walking among them. There is this unique blessing given to the gathered people, to the affirmation of the multitude. So we see this response to God's servant a response that we also experience in part of love and loyalty. But secondly, we also see another response to David as the servant of God. We see also a response of jealousy, of anger, and even of violence. 
As we consider Saul's reaction, we might ask the question, what characterizes this opposition? And I certainly don't have an exhaustive list here, but as we look at the characterizations of, of this opposition from Paul, there's a number of things we could say. And I think this will very much be our own experience as we live out our Christian life, as we enjoy the presence of God and seek after him. There will be those who come against us with hostility, with anger, with jealousy. And one of the, one of the characteristics we see here in Saul, and, and I think a good reminder is that it will sometimes come from unexpected sources. The hostility and the anger for the Christian often comes from places we would maybe least expect it. We see this strange mixture of responses from Saul. At first, Saul is praising David and he's eager to bring David into his household and set David over his, over his, his fighting men, we're told. But as David begins to attract more attention than Saul. And the ladies are rejoicing after battle and singing that, yes, Saul has killed his ten thousands, but Saul has killed his thousands, excuse me, and David his ten thousands, that Saul's reaction now becomes anger and jealousy, and he becomes suspicious of David. And David, we'll see, often is somewhat baffled by this hostility. He has never spoken ill of Saul. He has never sought to undermine Saul's authority. He has never sought to to elevate himself to a position of prominence. Even when given opportunity, David will refuse to strike out against the Lord's anointed, against Saul. He has utmost respect for the position of Saul. And, And David may wonder, why does this man hate me so much? Why is there such uh, jealousy and anger and rage? And this is often difficult for the servant of God, that hostility will come from places that we least expect it. In fact, in Luke 12, let's flip over there quickly, get a drink of water, maybe. Listen to the words of Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus only came to bring in the world peace and some sort of utopia. <clears throat> but Jesus actually warned that as his servants live out their Christian calling and seek to honor him in Luke twelve fifty two, there is a sense of peace among the people of God in, in fellowship. But he said in, backing up to uh, verse 49, of Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division, for from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What is Jesus saying? I thought Jesus came to, to, to bring perfect peace in all of our relationships and all of our interactions. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, I, I came to cast fire. I, I came in a sense to, to even bring a sword, he would say. That as we stand for Christ, as we proclaim the truth 
in a world that is also mingled with unbelievers, we will encounter hostility, we will encounter anger, and at times rage, and at times for many around the world, it is actually life-threatening. And so there should be a sense in which we are not surprised, but we actually do expect this at times. We don't obviously look for it. We don't enjoy it. It, it grieves us. It breaks our heart when, when people react with hostility against Christ and his word. But this also has been a mark of the servants of God. They have experienced varying forms of hostility against them. This was certainly David's experience as the Lord's servant and one more scripture here from the book of Acts as well. As Paul is speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus and he's giving them instruction as he's about to depart. Listen to what he told them. Very sobering words. He said, pay in Acts uh, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul warned them that even in the household of God, even among professing Christians, there will arise wolves who Paul identifies as false teachers speaking twisted things and who are actually not of the household of God, but of the synagogue of Satan, and yet they creep in, and we see this still plagues the church today. Many forms of false teaching. We're called to be vigilant. We're called to even expect these attacks. So we see that it comes from unexpected places, but also the hostility, as we see in the example of Saul, there's a mingling of Saul's own pride and his own jealousy, but there is also a spiritual element. I know we talked uh, quite a while ago about how, how do we understand this spirit, this tormenting spirit that comes from the Lord. Uh, and in many ways, I, I think of Job, in which we see Satan uh, getting permission from God to torment Job. And so and there's a sense in which the Lord sent the devil Towards Job, actually God pointed Job out and said, have you considered my servant Job? And yet God is not the one actively responsible for the actions of the devil. He, he yes, is, is, is sovereign over these things and he's able to use them for his own glory. And yet even demonic spirits uh, can, can afflict and attack the people of God, not outside of God's care and watch, but also independent from God himself tempting or committing any sort of evil. We know God does not tempt, uh, James tells us clearly. So we are tempted by our own flesh, but we also see this demonic element here as well. Again, it depends a bit how we understand this uh, tormenting spirit given to Saul, but no doubt as it affects Saul, there is an element of rage, there's an element of of, uh, instability, and, and we're told that 
when the harmful spirit came in verse 10, that he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, and he had a spear in his hand, and so he hurls the spear at David, hoping to pin him to the wall. And, and there is times in which the hostility against the servant of God, it, it is irrational, it is, it is demonic. There is spiritual forces against the people of God, against his servants. Paul tells us this plainly in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and, and principalities and authorities in, in heavenly places. And this is why we must put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, and so on. There is a spiritual war as well. And this spiritual enemy, the devil and his minions, despise Christ. They hate those who are called by his name. And so we can expect as well at times to experience hostility, even in demonic fashions. And this is not something we're to to go around looking for a demon under every rock. We know that the spirit who is within us is greater than he who's in the world. The Bible clearly tells us, and even as we sang this morning, that one little word will fell him by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome the beast, but it is yet a war. We see also that Saul's response is it's not only a spiritual element there, and it's not only unexpected, but it's also irrational. We've seen this a bit already. Saul's rage against David, it, it didn't make sense. David was loyal to the king. He, he gave no reason for Saul to expect treason, and yet there is this ongoing irrational opposition towards him. And that is also the case today. For those who are named by the name of Christ, there will be at times irrational unexplainable anger and hatred. I know some of you have experienced this even in the workplace, in your job. Somebody becomes furious just about the the mention of Christ or about his word, and and, and then there's no real rationality to it. We We can talk about the Muslims, we can talk about politics, we can talk about all these things, but at the name of Christ, at the name of his word, there is this irrational hostility. And at times, this, this sort of response to God's servant is also potentially life-threatening. David, from this point on, would become the hunted. Saul, again and again, even in this chapter, there are five attempts on David's life. And soon, because even Jonathan had covenanted with David and, and given David his friendship, Jonathan, too, would, would have his own life threatened at times. And I imagine for many of us here, we've not experienced that sort of hostility to have our very life threatened. But as we look about the culture in which we live, I would say even to you who are young, um, to the, the teenagers and even to children, unless the Lord brings about tremendous revival and awakening in our land, I would say there is every reason to expect that sort of hostility in your lifetime. You may have to stand. Before a firing squad or before an electric chair, you may have to stand and say, will I either renounce my faith in Christ or will I die? And of course, this is not something that we we want. We don't tend to think of that. We always tend to think, oh, well, we live in a a free country. We live in in a, a nation that was built upon the principles of the scripture. Certainly that would never happen in our own country. Someone becomes so hostile to the servants of God that they want to destroy them and take their life. 
And yet we only have to think a few years ago, we really came right to the edge of that sort of hostility. People were cheering as pastors were thrown in jail just for keeping their churches open and trying to be faithful to the commands of Scripture. And our society rejoiced in those moments. And I think by God's mercy that some of the foolishness was exposed. I mean, I'm sure you're looking around today as well, and we see how the, even the, the acts of our own prime minister and declaring the emergency, using the Emergencies Act at the peaceful protest in Ottawa, and, 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 and that's already now being seen as illegal. That was completely unconstitutional, and we can give the Lord thanks for a time of reprieve again in our country. But let us not be so foolish as to think we may never face this sort of, this sort of opposition against us. Are we expecting it at times? If we're going to be faithful, then we, we may well encounter that. And we think about those serving other parts of the world who face this sort of hostility every day. We need to remind ourselves of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are we preaching that to ourselves? Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, Jesus says. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so if we are going to be spirit-filled servants of God, we will face varying forms of hostility And may we strengthen ourselves, even as David did in the Lord. A great tool um, that you can use, and actually I know some of you have gone through even the chronological reading plan uh, of the Bible. And I especially loved going through the chronological plan, which kind of structures the Bible reading in in the way that it, it, you know, quite likely happened historically. And so what you have is you read through 1 Samuel is you'll be in a moment where David is being hunted and pursued by Saul, and then all of a sudden you'll have two or three psalms that you read, psalms that were actually written, likely, in those very moments of darkness, in those very moments of despair. David would pen a psalm of prayer and praise, strengthen himself in in God, and, and we need to learn from that example. Read those psalms, meditate upon them, pray about them. Ask God to give you that sort of heart in the midst of it. And of course, as we consider the life of David, something that becomes more and more clear to me is that in so many ways, David is something of a template for Christ who would come as his son, the son of David. I mean, you read something like Psalm 23, David describing his sufferings, David describing his torment, and he's describing things that that aren't even really a, a reality yet. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Roman crucifixion hadn't even been created yet, and David is describing the sufferings of Christ in a way that, that really just boggles our mind. And so David becomes not only an example for us, but he is also a template of Christ who would come. And we can consider the life of Christ in these same themes. Jesus experienced at times the the closeness of fellowship and intimacy among brothers. He had his 12 disciples. And even among the disciples, there were those who were uniquely close to to Christ. We refer to them as the, the inner three, Peter, James, and John. These three men who Jesus uniquely confided in. 
and trusted and who would become important leaders in the early church. It's interesting, even Jesus in his humanity coming to these men in his darkest hour and saying, brothers, pray with me, pray with me to think the Son of God incarnate coming to his brothers in the Lord and asking them to to pray with him. It's an incredible thought. We know Jesus also experienced tremendous loneliness as his disciples would abandon him before the cross. And Christ would strengthen himself in his Father. But Jesus rejoiced when the Holy Spirit was opening the eyes of his friends, of his disciples, and revealing truth to them. Jesus also loved and cared for the corporate people of God, the congregation. He would look out over the crowds and we're told his, his heart would be moved with compassion for them. He would spend himself for the good of the people. And of course, we know Jesus would experience more than anyone the hostility against him as the servant of God, as the spirit-filled man. The hostility against Jesus was irrational. It was, it was demonic. It came from those who should have been most loyal to Christ. Judas, one of the twelve, and yet would betray Christ to his face, handing him over to be crucified. Jesus is very much acquainted with these realities. But of course, we know that in all of those things, in all of the experiences of Christ, he was not caught off guard. He, he was not caught off guard even by Judas, because he also is the God-man. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave up him, himself. He, he handed himself over to the hostility, because he understood that it is through the, the hands of lawless men that his life would be poured out as a sacrifice for many. He willingly went like a lamb to the slaughter and there bled and died so that we might be forgiven, we might be reconciled to God. We read in in John 15 together how we are no longer called servants, Jesus said, but I now call you my friends to think we have been moved from a place of hostility, of of rebellion against God, and in Christ we are now called the friends of God, the brothers of Christ, co-heirs in his inheritance, brought into the household of God, given the robe, given the ring on our finger. What a privilege that we have in Christ our Lord. At times Paul would say that all have abandoned me but the Lord was with me. And I think that is so important. As servants of God, we learn to abide in the presence of God. We strengthen ourselves in Him. And as we prepare to come to the table this morning, we're reminded of what it cost that we be brought into the family of God, that we be made the friends of God, that we enjoy the presence of God. It cost the life of Christ, his blood shed, his body broken, him enduring the wrath of God on our behalf that we can be forgiven and cleansed. And so we come to the table to remember that, but we also come to the table to enjoy his presence now. The the, the means of grace of the table is meant also to to be the very real and, and present help of Christ, grace imparted to his people as we press on in this pilgrimage. 
And it also points us forward to the day when Christ will come again. He will come in power. He will glorify these heavens and earth and raise us up with him to reign with him forever and enjoy perfect communion and fellowship with one another and with Christ our Lord. So let us pray as we prepare to come to the table together. Uh, Voice of prayer and then uh, we'll prepare ourselves to come. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the example of David. Lord, we know that it was because your hand was upon him, Lord. It's because you were present with him. It it marked his life. And though we know he was not perfect, Father, we see that he points us to the perfect one, to the one who would come of his line, Christ our Lord, who is our Redeemer and our friend, And so, Father, I pray as we come to the table now that we would do so with hearts of thanksgiving, of confidence in you. Lord, you help us to remind ourselves that that all of life is lived out before your presence, Lord, and, and that we can walk in the fear of you and seek to honor you, whether we are at home, Lord, around the dinner table, or putting children to bed, Lord, or if we're on the work site, that this would truly mark us. And when we experience varying reactions, Father, that we would not, Lord, be quick to respond with our emotions, but continually entrusting ourselves to you. Give us the sort of heart that even rejoices in the face of persecution, knowing that our reward is great in heaven. And so I pray you you guide us now into the afternoon, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.